Hey, good morning, everybody. Thanks so much for being here today and for worshiping God together. Great time of worship this morning, and now we get, just get to keep it rolling by getting into God's Word. We're in the book of Acts, working through Acts verse by verse, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles, feel free to go ahead and do that. Before we dive into it today, I'll tell you, we've just got a few weeks left in this series before we're going to take a break, and then we'll pick it back up later. But I've got a sabbatical coming up after being here for five years, you get a sabbatical. And so I'm going to take that, and during that sabbatical, I asked the, all the guest speakers that we've lined up for us if they wanted to just continue through Acts or if they wanted to kind of do their own thing. And they said they did not want to continue in Acts for that. So what we came up with is a series called The Verse That Changed Everything. And I asked every guest speaker to find the verse in the Bible that has made the biggest difference in their life. And so these are some phenomenal speakers. Some of them are in our church. Some of them are guest speakers. Some you've heard before who are coming back for a second time. Some it'll be their first time here. And you're going to get to hear from them the verse that made the biggest impact in their life and why it was so powerful to them. So I will kick off that series with one of the most influential verses in my life in the book of James. And then you'll just hear from a bunch of other people. It's going to be great. You are not going to want to miss it. Really, really good stuff. Then when I come back from my sabbatical, we're going to launch a series called Created to Connect, God's Design for Gender and Intimacy. We're going to cover the cultural issues that are important and relevant to sexuality and gender, but we're also going to take a much broader look at how did God design this in the first place? What is it supposed to look like? And then eventually we'll get back into the Acts series and keep it going from there. So there's a little look at what the roadmap is for the future. The other thing I'll mention is... Um, Thanks to those of you that have submitted questions for the Five Questions podcast. That has been a lot of fun. If you, if you, if you aren't familiar, that's a podcast where I, I give some thoughts on people's questions on a variety of different topics. We've covered uh, dinosaurs and aliens and a whole bunch of other weird things, artificial intelligence. The last one is called Preppers, Evil, and the Blessed Mother. So, you know, it sounds interesting. You should check it out. It's been a lot of fun to do. Thanks to all of you who've been submitting questions for that. You can find that at efree.org slash back together if you want to have a listen. Today we're in the book of Acts. We're in 50, chapter 15. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, and we're going to see two stories of division and disagreement and how they came to resolution. The first story is a corporate church division story, and the second story is a personal disagreement division story. And we're going to follow the arc of both of those and see how they turn out, and then, of course, what we can learn along the way. But before we do that, let's pause, take a minute, and just quiet our hearts, forget all the distractions of the week as best we can, and focus ourselves in on what God has for us today. So would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are coming to you now, trying to leave behind all the things that weigh us down, the burdens that we hold on to in our lives, so that we can just be here to listen to you. And God, as, as I am a, a mouthpiece for your word this morning, I pray that you would help me to have wisdom and, and boldness in what I say. But even more than that, Holy Spirit, that you would do your work and guide us into the truth. Remind us of all the things that you've taught through Jesus and how the apostles passed on that teaching down to us. And I pray, God, that you would help us to see some things in your word today that would make a difference in how we think and how we live. Maybe some things that we need to change in our lives to better align with what you have for us, God. So we, we invite you now, Lord. We open our hearts and minds only to you to teach us and guide us today through your word and, and whatever you want to communicate through me today. And in your name we pray. Amen. 
So Acts chapter 15, we'll give you a little bit of review here because last week we talked about how the church in Antioch was dealing with this division over the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers struggling to get along with each other because there was this thought that maybe the Gentile believers need to follow the law of Moses, which starts with circumcision, in order to truly be saved. And there were these people that showed up from Judea, Jewish men, who came in and said, you can believe in Jesus, that's fine, but you also need to follow the law of Moses, starting with circumcision. And this led to a lot of conflict, because as we saw last week, you had Peter um, uh, at one point in, in the church history, not at this exact time, but at one point in the past, Peter had um, actually come in and, and been convinced or been influenced by some men from the church in Jerusalem, some of James' friends, and Peter had actually fallen into this trap of not believing he had to follow the law of Moses himself, but he, he still would practice this idea of I need to stay separated from these Gentiles until they follow some of the law of Moses because he was afraid of the, the peer pressure and the influence of these other people that came in there. So it led to this whole big thing in the church. So that happens and these men from Judea show up that are not from the church in Jerusalem, but they start preaching that you've got to follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. It's a whole thing. We saw it all unfold last week and we saw the resolution of it last week, but we're going to hit the tail end of that this week, and we're going to see how the church in Jerusalem responds to the church in Antioch to help deal with this issue. So verse 22 says, then the apostles and the elders together with the whole church in Jerusalem chose delegates and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. So this was the decision that they had made about whether or not you have to follow the law of Moses and whether or not you have to be circumcised if you're a Gentile in order to be a Christian. The men chosen were two of the church leaders, Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas. You'll want to remember that name for later. That's going to be important. This is the letter they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. And so this was meant to be spread throughout the churches. We understand that some men from here, from Judea, have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we did not send them. In other words, these weren't our people. Don't blame us. They weren't part of our church. This was, this was Jewish people, not part of the Christian faith, trying to convince the Christians in Antioch that they had to follow the law of Moses. And so that is what the church in Jerusalem has been dealing with, and now they're sending their resolution of that, recognizing that these men from Judea really caused a problem and, and trouble in this church in Antioch, caused so much division among them. The church in Jerusalem, by the way, did have people in it who believed that you should follow the law of Moses, but they didn't say you had to do that in order to be saved. They just still believed the law of Moses was a good thing that you ought to follow. That leads to this whole big disagreement in the church in Jerusalem. And now you've got people on different sides of this argument. And if you remember, some of James' buddies, James is the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem, some of his buddies were a big part of this disagreement because they believe you should still follow the law of Moses. So they had to come together, they had to make a decision, and here is what they concluded. Verse 25, so we decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I do wanna pause for just a minute to acknowledge a phrase that is really, really important here. It's the phrase, having come to complete agreement having come to complete agreement. Scholars say that the Greek word that's used here can carry the idea of harmony or harmonious. 
In other words, it's not that we necessarily agree on every little detail or everything, but we're directionally united, even if we may have some different opinions that are involved. And so I think that's a really neat thing that happens here, that we see this this church in Jerusalem with the apostles and the elders and people with different views on the law of Moses ultimately saying we're going to be directionally united in, in the outcome here, even if we have some different opinions along the way. And that's really a theme throughout the Bible. You see that all over the place, especially in the New Testament, where the Bible doesn't say we all have to agree on every little thing. We need to agree on what matters most. We need to agree on the gospel message of what it means to be a follower of Christ, that God created this world and and that people messed it up and sinned against God and Jesus came and died for our sin so that we can believe in his sacrifice for us and have his righteousness given to us. That message of the gospel, we all need to be united and agree on in order to be a part of the family of God, a part of, a part of his church. But there are lots of other things that we may disagree on, especially as it comes to how we live out that faith in our daily life. And it does not seem from God's word like that's wrong. Like we have to get rid of all those secondary kind of things that are in our life, those disagreements we may have. In fact, it's interesting to me to note that James never says in his conclusion that we talked about last week, Okay, now, all of you people that were keeping the law of Moses, you need to stop now. That doesn't seem to be a part of the conversation. He's not, he's not saying as a conclusion, guys, the law of Moses can't be required anymore, and so you shouldn't do it anymore. That, that's not spoken. Even Paul, when he's talking about in Galatians about uh, his confrontation of Peter, he doesn't say it was wrong for anyone to follow the law of Moses. No, his issue is the fact that Peter and Barnabas do not follow the law of Moses, but then are acting like it should be required for the Gentiles because of the peer pressure they experience. And so it's the hypocrisy that Paul is against. And here, what James is, is concluding is that it's not that the law of Moses is bad to follow, but you can't force that on other people. And there are these Jewish believers in the Jerusalem church who came out of a Pharisee background, the text says, and they still wanted to practice some of those laws and regulations. And you know what? If they feel they should, then that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, Paul would write in Romans 14 that if someone believes and is convinced that they should do something, they have that conviction, and it's not against God's word, then it would be a sin for them not to do that thing. So the Bible gives us this idea that all of our different views and perspectives and opinions aren't necessarily a bad thing, and it's okay for us to have some of those differences. Now, I'm going to get to a point right now in the sermon where we're going to reach an interactive segment, okay? And I'm telling you that because any of you that are currently doing this may want to just look up for a minute or you're going to feel really weird. It happens. I see it. You know, you think I don't, but I see it. So if you come from a Baptist background and are willing to out yourself, would you please raise your hand? Any, any form? I love it. All right, I'm, my hand is up. Baptist through and through. If you come from a Lutheran background, would you please raise your hand? Okay, less enthusiasm, but still as many hands. Not a surprise. Not a surprise. If you come from a Methodist background, would you please raise your hand? Okay. If you come from a Presbyterian background, would you raise your hand? All right, we've got a bunch of those. Okay. If you come from... Uh, let's say a charismatic uh, background. Would you raise your hand? Anybody out there? Okay. Yeah, yeah that's where you expect the enthusiasm. Exactly. Uh, how about Catholic? Any former Catholics here? Catholic background. Okay. Yep. We've got a lot of those. All right. How many of you have just come to faith in Jesus in the last like five years? Any of you out there just come to faith in the last five years? 
Okay, awesome. Praise God. That's great. All of you bring different things with you in that. You bring different pasts and traditions and opinions and preferences and understandings and experiences and beliefs with you. And, and sometimes those things need to change because we encounter stuff in God's word that makes us think, okay, actually, I was wrong about that. And other times you may conclude, well, I, I think this thing, but my brother or sister in Christ thinks this thing, and, and we just disagree on that. And a lot of times that's just okay because it doesn't seem like God has designed us to have these sort of cookie-cutter robot Christians in his church. In fact, it actually seems like the diversity of thought that we have is more of a feature than a bug because when you come to faith in Christ, he gives you, lot, he gives you different spiritual gifts. They're not all the same. And so he wants us thinking a little differently. He wants us reaching different people. He wants us doing things in some different ways in some cases. Now, eventually, of course, we are all going to leave this place and we're going to get to heaven and we're going to realize that Adam was right about all these different issues. And from your perspective, you're going to get there and realize that you were right. And I, I know. But the point is, it doesn't seem like scripture is telling us you guys need to get together and hash out every little thing and make sure you're all in agreement on everything. But instead, what we see again and again is we have different views and different opinions, but let's agree on what matters most and let's agree on the direction forward. And what this text is telling us here, which I think is really interesting, is that these, um, these the believers who came out of the Pharisee background, I, I doubt that they left all of their regulations behind for themselves personally. Um, that's a hard thing to, to shift away from if you really believe that's what we need to follow. But what they did realize in this conversation is we can't enforce this on other people. And I love that because they were in complete unity about the direction they were going, even though we know they had some very different opinions personally about how these matters applied to their lives. And I think that is a great model for us to follow. I think it's a great example of what we do in the EFCA and here in the church. We have different views, we have different opinions. You know, some people uh, in some churches like to argue about issues like Calvinism versus Arminianism or, or pre-mill or post-mill or ah-mill or various issues of eschatology and other kind of matters. And, and it's not to say any of those are unimportant. They're very important, um, but they're often things that we can't know with 100% certainty because we're not God. And so we can discuss them and debate them in a, in a friendly, gracious way while also disagreeing about them and still walking away fellow believers in Christ and uh, able to do ministry together. And that seems to be what happened here in the church in Jerusalem. So back to verse 27, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question. Now, last week we saw the church in Antioch send Paul and Barnabas, but not just Paul and Barnabas. They also send extra delegates with them to the church in Jerusalem to ask this question. And now the church in Jerusalem is sending Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch, but with extra delegates, Judas and Silas, to give the answer to that question. And it's almost like nobody trusts Paul and Barnabas. I don't know if that's true. I don't think so. I think they just wanted an abundance of confirmation to come with them. So, but every church seems to think Paul and Barnabas plus a few extras just in case. And here is what happened. Verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. Now, that's a very nice way of saying you don't have to follow the law of Moses. No greater burden on you, but we do have some things we want you to do. 29, you must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. It's a very short letter. That's basically a tweet. And I guess it's because 
these messengers are there. They can explain the details. They can give them the story. We're not going to waste any more ink on this. This is our message. I want you to eat the, not eat these things so that you can fellowship with Jewish believers. I want you to refrain from the sexual immorality that is so prevalent in Antioch at this time. Goodbye. And that's it. That's the, the message. The messengers went at once to Antioch where they called a general meeting of the believers and delivered the letter. And there was great joy throughout the entire church that day as they read this encouraging message. Now, there was joy throughout the church because both the Jewish background believers and the Gentile background believers were happy with this result. Why would they be happy with this result? Well, for the Jewish believers, they have been in no man's land when it comes to how they can relate to and interact with their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. For a while, they were totally fine with eating meals together and hanging out and doing small group together and all that stuff. But then they started to wonder because of this influence that came in, wait a minute, but they're not circumcised. They're not following the law of Moses. These things are a part of our culture. They're part of our tradition, our family, our heritage. Like, should, should they be doing this stuff too? And so they weren't sure. It caused this rift in the church. And what they really needed was clarity. They needed clarity around what do we do? Move, just give us an answer. What do we do moving forward? And that's what they got. So for the Jewish believers, they were happy because they finally had clarity on whether they needed to expect that the law of Moses be followed by these Gentile believers. And the Gentile men were happy because, well, you can figure out why the Gentile men were happy. Just read the text. Verse 32. Everybody's happy. That's the point. Judas and Silas, both being prophets, spoke at length to the believers, encouraging and strengthening their faith. Now listen carefully to this next part, because there is going to be a test. Verse 33, they stayed for a while, and then the believers sent them back to the church in Jerusalem with a blessing of peace. Verse 35, Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch. They and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord there. Did anybody catch it? What's missing Verse 34, that's right. I don't know who, who said it, but good job. Elizabeth, yeah, all right. But you're supposed to say, what is verse 34? <laughs> Sorry, inside joke. Why isn't verse 34 in our Bibles today? Now, this is the type of question that would be easy to just skip over. But as I thought about it this week, I realized this is the type of question that we need to address in churches and here's why. A lot of times, young Christians grow up in the church believing one thing about our scriptures, believing that, that everything they're hearing, they can confidently trust in, in a certain way. And then they get to high school, and they get to college, and they're presented with thoughts and ideas that they never encountered in church growing up. Because the churches didn't talk about some of the tough things about the text, the things that seem like they're missing or seem like there's an error. And then they question it, and they go, well, maybe the whole thing's just not real. So that's why I think when we encounter something like this, where something's missing and it's confusing to us, and we go, well, how is there a verse 34 and now there's not a verse 34? Why is that missing in there? We've got to talk about why is that missing in there so that they know there's a very good reason for this. And yes, you can still trust your Bible that you're reading today. So let's talk about it a little bit. Verse 34 says that even though 33 told us that Silas and Judas were going back to Jerusalem to report back, Verse 34 says, and you might see this in the footnotes of, of your Bible if you have a, a good translation there, that while Judas went alone, Silas decided to stay in Antioch. Why is that? Because in verse 40, we're going to see Silas again in Antioch. So how did this happen? 
Why was there a verse 34 there at one point, and then there's not a verse 34 now? And if you look in the ESV and the CSB and the NLT, which I tend to use, or the NASB or the NIV or a whole bunch of these other translations, you will see there's no verse 34, but there's usually a footnote saying some manuscripts include verse 34, and then it'll give you that line about Silas and Judas. Here's what's going on. As time moves on, archaeologists keep finding older and better manuscripts of God's word. And so counterintuitively, the further we get away from the events of the Bible, the more accurate version we're getting compared to hundreds of years ago of that Bible. We're actually getting closer and closer to the original manuscripts, which is pretty incredible. What we have today is a translation, or many translations, of copies of copies of copies of manuscripts from the originals that we no longer have. That is why our statement of faith here at this church says this, as the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings. Every now and then, I will get people who will, who will talk to me about one of these mistakes that they have found in the Bible or, or omissions like we're talking about right now and say, aha, this proves that the Bible is not without error. And I will tell you, I never said my translation was without error. My translation is the result of copies of copies of copies of copies and multiple translations along the way and lots of people involved in that. Anytime you have, and we have tens of thousands of manuscripts from the Bible and thousands and thousands of copyists involved in this, you're going to statistically get some errors introduced there as people add a letter where they're not supposed to or change a word or leave a word out or different things. But there's something else that happens there, which is you also make it much easier with all those resources to uncover when those errors occurred and, and where they are. So you increase the likelihood of introducing some errors, although such care was taken that those errors tend to be very, very small and, and not changing the meaning of the text at all. But you also make it easier to find those errors because you have such a wealth of, of manuscripts to work from. There is no other work of antiquity that has the kind of manuscript evidence that the Bible has. It's, it's really incredible. The amount of evidence we have to help reconstruct the text of the Bible. But along the way, sometimes little changes get made. And so, if you go back to uh, 1611, for instance, when the first King James Version was translated, they were working with the Textus Receptus, and they were working with the manuscripts that were relatively accurate, but had some things that today we know weren't actually in the original manuscripts. How do we know that? Because as time goes on, archaeologists cover, uncover manuscripts that are older and better. They were sealed up in clay jars and left in a cave somewhere. And they pull it out and they go, oh, wow, this is an even older, better manuscript of Mark. That just happened within the last 10 years. We found the oldest manuscript ever of, of Mark. And not we, but archaeologists, obviously. And when they find that, it gives them a chance to compare it to the rest of the text of Scripture. And generally speaking, what happens is they go, oh, wow, this, this copy that we had already was 99% accurate. But we did find a little tweak here, a little change here. And then we compare that to the other oldest manuscripts, and they go, okay, I think we can confidently say that all the oldest manuscripts don't include verse 34, and at some point, maybe in the second or third century, some copyist, some scribe added verse 34 in there. And here's how that works. And this has happened several times with this, the texts. The copyist is, is looking at this, and he goes, this doesn't make sense. Silas goes back to Jerusalem, but a little bit later, he's in Antioch again. That can't be right. He must have decided to stay. To, in, to clear this up for people in the future, I'm just going to go ahead and put a little note in the parentheses here and say, 
Silas decided to stay in Antioch. And then later on, someone is making a copy of this guy's manuscript, but they didn't have verse numbers back then. They didn't have all the same markings that we have today. And he sees that note and thinks, oh, I'm just going to put that right in there in line with the text. And so we actually have evidence of manuscripts that go from margin notes to it's in the copy of the text to it gets confused as actual part of the text later. And every scholar that I looked at this week seemed to think that's exactly what happened here. That some copyist along the way added this note to try to make sense of the text. It was really supposed to be commentary, but then it got included in subsequent manuscripts as if it was really part of the text. And then it makes its way into the King James Version and some others, even though we now know it's not actually part of the original text. The bottom line is, as time goes on, our translations are actually getting more and more faithful and closer to the original text because archaeologists keep finding more manuscripts. And when they do, every single time, without fail, the analysis shows this is extremely accurate, but we might learn a little bit more about some tiny little grammatical change or a little shift or something like this where we find out, okay, this is, this is not in the original text. It got included over time. What that should tell you is that the Bible translation you have in front of you is a product of of humans copying over the years. And if we find some mistake or inconsistency or something like that, first of all, it's, it's incredibly rare. Secondly, when it happens, it's almost never significant to the theology or the application of the text. Um, and, and third, you have to understand that's just the result of, yeah, humans over thousands of years. But at the same time, God has preserved his word with incredible faithfulness so that today, now, even better than in the 1600s, we can look at our text and say, this is the closest thing we can get to the actual inspired original manuscripts of God, which is awesome. Now, we have to be very honest about that and not fool ourselves in thinking that what I have in my translation in front of me is the very inspired words of God. It is the closest I can get to them, which is awesome. You know, if we had the original manuscripts of scripture, they would become idols People would bow down and, and worship those pages. There'd be wars perhaps fought over them. And so instead, God has chosen in his sovereignty to allow those to disappear and yet to allow the tens of thousands of copies to take their place. And then through careful scholarly analysis, we get the incredibly accurate renditions that we have today. And I just think it's important that we actually acknowledge that so that People who are struggling in this area of what about these, these differences that I see or what about the accusations that I see from outside the church about God's word know that, yeah, we're aware of that. And all of that has very plausible, reasonable, historical, archaeological answers that make sense. But that's not the main point of, our point of our message today. So let's get back to Acts 15. And we're going to move on to our second story. The first story was a story of division and then harmony within the church. The next story is a story of division between some people, a few people who disagree. Verse 36, after some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord to see how the new believers are doing. Now, this is in the planning phase of Paul's second missionary journey. But at this time, notice that it wasn't really a missionary journey. It was an encouragement tour. The plan was not to go all over the province of Asia and preach the gospel and, and into Europe and preach the gospel as would eventually happen in this next journey. But the plan originally was for it to be to go back to the churches in Cyprus and to encourage the believers there and go, go through and see how they're doing and then teach them and share with them whatever they need to do to continue growing. Verse 37, Barnabas agreed. Good idea, Paul. Let's do it. 
and wanted to take along John Mark. Now, you might remember John Mark from a week ago when we saw that he was an assistant to Paul and Barnabas, and he ended up leaving them when they got to Pamphylia and heading back to Jerusalem, but we weren't told why that was. Now we find out. Paul says, or, but Paul disagreed strongly, verse 38, since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. Basically, Paul thought John Mark was weak. He wasn't up to the task. He couldn't cut it on the journey ahead. He couldn't cut it last time, and he can't cut it now. He gave up too early. He should have just ignored his homesickness or whatever it was he was dealing with and kept going like Paul and Barnabas did. And now, Barnabas, you want to let that guy back on the team? He's just going to slow us down, man. He's going to eat all our food, and then he's going to reach a point where he can't go any further, and then he's going to take off. And you and I will have to continue on our own again. And so Paul doesn't want to take him. Barnabas wants to take him. This turns into a very strong disagreement. Verse 39, their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas, and as he left, the believers entrusted him to the Lord's gracious care. Then he traveled throughout Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches there. That's Paul and Silas. Now, on the surface, this seems like a colossal failure. You have these two heavyweights of the faith here, Paul and Barnabas, man. These are great people, and they're such a good team. And then they get in this disagreement about John Mark, and couldn't they come up with some kind of compromise? Couldn't they come up with some way to, to just say, yeah, all right, we disagree on this, but here's what we'll decide for today, and then we'll, we'll at least continue serving in ministry together. And I don't know 100% who was right and who was wrong here. Was Paul right? Was Barnabas right? We'll talk about that in a little bit because I, I do have some thoughts on it, but I don't know with 100% certainty. What I can do is look at the outcome. I can look at the outcome and see what happened as a result of this disagreement. And maybe there are some things we can learn from that. So the first point I want to make is that they're both committed. Paul and Barnabas are both committed to serving God, even though they disagree with another believer. They're both committed to serving God. Sometimes when we experience disagreements with believers, with churches, it can lead us to think, I'm done. I'm just not going to do it anymore. Like I have that disagreement with that person or I have that disagreement with that church and it cuts me so deep that I'm just, I'm not going to be involved in church anymore. And there are a lot of people like that today who will say I'm a Christian, but I'm not connected with any kind of church. I'm done with the church. And usually it has something to do, I got hurt in some way in the church. Somebody, somebody offended me or somebody did something or said something that I didn't like and so I'm done. And that's not what Paul and Barnabas do here. In fact, sometimes you have Christians who are in the church but they're not serving anywhere. They're not involved in any way in the church. And they will say, yeah, I tried that, but it didn't go over real well. And so now I just, you know, I go to the services, but I'm not involved in any other way. And, and that's not how God designed us to work either. With Paul and Barnabas, what you see is they continue serving God, even though they disagree with each other. You know, Barnabas doesn't say, that's it. I'm going home. No more of this, Paul. I'm, I'm done. No, I'm going to keep serving God. I'm going to go to Cyprus. And Paul doesn't say, that was so frustrating, I just can't stand it anymore, I'm not going to do this. No, I'm going to continue serving God as well. And see, the thing is, in God's team, there is no bench. There's no bench on God's team. Everyone's supposed to be on the field. Everyone is given a gift of the Holy Spirit. Everyone is supposed to be involved in some way in Christ's church. That's the way he designed us to work. And if you're not involved in some way, if you're not serving in some way in God's church, then that means you're not fulfilling everything that God designed you to do. And what we see here is that Paul and Barnabas, they continue serving even though they have this disagreement. Don't let a disagreement or, or an a issue that you have with other believers in Jesus keep you from doing what God has gifted you to do. 
When you become a follower of Jesus, he gives you gifts of the Holy Spirit so that you can serve, so that you can be an encouragement to others. Don't ignore that. Don't neglect that. Don't let disagreement or frustration keep you from doing what God has designed you to do. And you'll find so much more spiritual growth and satisfaction and joy in still serving, even if you've had some struggles in the past. Number two, They end up serving more believers and reaching more people for Christ because they separated. If they had stayed together, they would not have gone their separate ways and reached these different people. Barnabas and Mark, they end up going to Cyprus and encouraging all the churches there and strengthening the churches there. And then Paul and Silas, they go on a completely different path, which we're going to talk about in the future. And they reach all these other churches first, and then they branch out and bring the gospel to places that had never been before and start all these new churches. Now, I wonder if the church in Antioch, if some of those people happened to spot Barnabas and John Mark getting on that boat and went, wait a minute, why are those two taking off without Paul? What's going on there? And then a little bit later, the church has a commissioning service for Paul and Silas. And there's some people going, but uh, wasn't Barnabas supposed to be part of this team? Where's he at? I mean, that could have led to some some discussion, some talk, maybe even a little bit of gossip around, hey, what, what happened here? But little could they know the good that God would do through what looked like a, a, a bit of a spiritual divorce at this point. And I'm not necessarily saying that it was, it was a great thing that it happened from, from any outsider's perspective. They may have looked at it and went, oh, what a, what a bummer. Man, I wish those two guys could get along. And yet we now know looking back couple thousand years later, wow, look at all the believers that were, re- were reached and strengthened and all the unbelievers that were reached with the gospel because of that split up. It gives us a very different perspective. Paul would later, later write in Romans chapter eight, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And I just wonder if when he was writing those words, he was thinking back to this disagreement we had, he had with Barnabas and thinking about how, wow, God took that time, which was rough and it was difficult and it put a pit in my stomach and he ended up using it for good. There are a lot of times where God takes broken, messed up situations and, and, and situations where maybe you're at fault, maybe you're not at fault, maybe you're both at fault and there's disagreement and there's frustration and God can take those, those rough situations and turn them around for something incredible. He likes to make beautiful things out of ashes and sometimes we don't see it for a long, long time. Whatever has you discouraged or depressed or feeling anxious today, just think about that. The fact that that God is going to use this and turn it around for good, you may just have to wait 2,000 years to see it. I know that's a long time, but God works on that time frame. And so we have to be patient with him and what he's doing. Um, I know a lot of people who can describe a tragedy that happened in their life 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago and actually look back on it and say, but I wouldn't go back and change it now because of what God did through that. I wouldn't be the person I am today. It wouldn't have had the impact that it had I wouldn't have the family that I have. That was terrible, but now looking back, I wouldn't change it. Maybe I would like to change some of the things I did in that or the things I said in that, but look how God used it for good. So have that perspective on life. Number three, they all end up where God wants them. The book of Acts doesn't actually tell us the resolution of this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, but later on, Paul would. When he's in prison, probably in Rome, he writes this letter to the Colossians. And by the way, here's another example how Paul 
if, if it hadn't been for Paul's imprisonments, we wouldn't have a lot of the letters we have in the Bible. So at the time, I'm sure the Christians thought, oh no, Paul, he's in jail again. What is going on? And yet God is just saying, hey, I'm just giving him a writing sabbatical. That's all this is. It's a chance for him to write some stuff for those believers a couple thousand years from now. So his imprisonment benefited you and me tremendously. At the time, he may or may not have fully understood that. But here's what he wrote to the church in Colossians. Aristarchus, who is in prison with me, sends you his greetings, and so does Mark, Barnabas' cousin. As you were instructed before, make Mark welcome if he comes your way. Now, did any of you pick up on why Barnabas might have stood up for Mark? He's family. Which leads me to believe Paul was probably right. Because Barnabas, we did not hear this in Acts but Barbus is like, come on, he's family man. He, you know, I, I don't want to tell his mom we rejected him. Like, he's got to come with us. And Paul is there like, he deserted us last time. There's no way he can make it on this trip. But then on the other hand, I think, you know what? But Barnabas was kind of right too. Like John Mark ends up being this, this uh, great person in the future who Paul obviously loved. And, and Barnabas is here with, or uh, uh, Mark is here with Paul, as Paul is in prison, and Paul says, hey, make him welcome if he comes your way. I want you to greet this guy and be warm with him. So the two obviously got back together, and that all worked out in the end. So here's Barnabas, who's, who's the great encourager, taking John Mark under his wing and going off to Cyprus. And so then I kind of think, well, Barnabas was kind of right too. And think about it from John Mark's perspective. Not too long ago, he's in Antioch, young guy, and he gets this opportunity to go with Uncle Barnabas and Big Paul on this journey. This is a big deal for him. Like, wow, the Paul. And I'm going to go with him on this trip. I'm going to be his assistant. It's going to be great. And they make their way through Cyprus and everything is okay. And then they travel over to Pamphylia. And he's like, I'm not up for this, guys. I got to get out of here. Imagine the pit in his stomach on the boat ride back to Jerusalem, thinking about the look on Paul's face as he told him, I can't make it anymore. Think about the discouragement that he must have felt. If ever a guy needed a second chance, John Mark needed his second chance, and he gets it, and he goes back to Antioch, and he's there, and Paul wants to t take another trip, and Barnabas is like, John Mark, you, you ready? And John Mark's like, yeah, I can go, and Barnabas is like, all right, let's do it, and Paul's like, no. Imagine the discouragement that he faced with that rejection in front of him. What John Mark needed, though, was not the difficult journey that Paul and Silas had ahead of them. God knew that John Mark wasn't ready for that. Paul and Silas, they would end up going off and getting in prison and having all sorts of difficulties and struggles and, and ailments. And Barnabas would take John Mark to Cyprus for a relatively easy tour of the churches there on the nice island in the Mediterranean. And that's what John Mark needed. He needed some time. You know, I've worked with uh, a lot of people and, uh, and I've been this person in the past uh, and I've interviewed a lot of people for jobs where it was very clear sometimes we think we're destined for big things and we think that big thing is the next step and we don't realize we're missing a bunch of steps along the way in that journey. And so we see this vision for what God could do through us or what we could do in our career or the great thing we could do through a nonprofit and all of that through the lens of how is God going to work through me to do good in this world, whether it's through my job or through ministry or, or serving in some nonprofit or whatever it may be. And we see that and we hit a setback and we think, oh man, Maybe I shouldn't even continue. Maybe I shouldn't even try this. 
And sometimes that could cause us to redirect in a healthy way. But a lot of times I think what God is doing is he's letting us know you need more time in the oven. You need more time before you're ready for this. Don't give up. Don't stop doing anything. But there's something I want to teach you so that you're ready for the future of ministry. Was Paul right? Yeah, I think he was. Was Barnabas right? Yeah, I think he was. I suspect that both of these guys were right and that actually they did need to part ways. And they ended up doing a lot more good. And John Mark ends up getting mentored by Uncle Barnabas and has the time that he needs on Cyprus. And Paul and Silas go do the difficult thing. You know, they're, they're, they're on very different trails but it's right where God wanted them. And that leads me to point number four. They all ended up working together again. They all ended up working together again. This is from Colossians 4.10 again. I'm gonna read the first verse that I read before and then we're gonna add one more to it. Aristarchus, who is in prison with me, sends you his greetings and so does Mark, Barnabas' cousin. As you were instructed before, make Mark welcome if he comes your way. Here's the new part. Jesus, the one we call justice, also sends his greetings these, he's referring back to this whole list of people that he's just mentioned, including John Mark. These are the only Jewish believers among my coworkers. So now Mark is called a coworker of Paul. They are working with me here for the kingdom of God and what a comfort they have been. Isn't that cool? So now John Mark, the deserter, the guy who wasn't ready, the guy who couldn't tough it out, who couldn't cut it, who wouldn't have the endurance is now a coworker in the kingdom of God and he's a great comfort to the apostle Paul. He got his second chance and he stuck with it and he grew and he learned the things he needed to. And then you saw how that came full circle and God used it for good in the end. But he had to experience some bumps and some humbling and some patience before he got there. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you have a desire for something greater, something bigger, something better in your life, something for your family, for your job, for how you're serving, for ministry, whatever it may be. And you're thinking, man, I want that thing and I think that thing is next. And then you hit a setback in your life. And it often causes us to just wallow in self-pity or to feel like we're a victim or if it's really bad to self-medicate with all sorts of things that we use to fill that void of, of the rejection instead of doing the healthy thing like John Mark did. So what I wanna do as we close here is give you four questions to ask. If you feel like you have hit a setback or a snag in your life and you are wondering, is there something beyond this? Is there something for me in the future? God, what are you doing right now in my life with this difficulty? Here are the four questions. Number one, so you can't do the thing you wanted to do. What can you do? You can't do the thing you want to do. What can you do? Barnabas, John Mark, can't go with Paul. All right, what can we do? We can go to Cyprus. We can go encourage the churches. We can keep doing ministry. That's the thing we can do next. And eventually, uh, John Mark ends up with Paul again, like he wanted from the beginning. But he had to do something else first. What is the next thing you can do, even if you can't do the thing you really want to do? Number two, who can you reach out to for mentoring in this next season? Most people go through struggles in life without reaching out to someone that maybe has been down that journey before or can help with some questions to coach and to guide and mentor through those difficulties. Praise God, John Mark had Barnabas to help along the way. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, Barnabas, the one who had the warmth needed to guide young and maybe immature John Mark into greater levels of spiritual maturity and influence for the kingdom. Who can you reach out to that can help you with the setback that you're experiencing in life? Don't just go through it alone. Make sure there is someone, whether it's a Christian counselor or a pastor or a Christian who has a lot of wisdom that you know, who you can just say, hey, can we get together? I wanna share with you some of the stuff I'm wrestling with and just talk about it together. God designed us to work that way with each other. 
Number three, what are the good things that God might do as a result of your setback? So I have found that one of the greatest exercises of faith for me is when I'm experiencing a setback to just try to imagine what good could come from this that God might do and even pray about it with God. God, what are you trying to do with this in the future? And just the process of imagining what those good things could be is a faith grower. To shift your attention from, oh man, the thing I wanted to do or I wanted to have happen didn't happen. I don't get to do what I wanted to do. But instead, to redirect that energy to, okay, God, what are you trying to do in this season? What are the good things that might happen? How can I be a blessing to other people even because of this setback that I have experienced? And that leads me to the last one, which is, how can you grow into the kind of person God will trust with greater things in the future? That is the ultimate question. How can you grow? What can you do to learn? What can you do to remove the things that maybe God realizes are in your life right now and they're a barrier to what he wants you to do next? But you've gotta take some time to find those and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you in that. What are the things that you need to shore up in? And you may not know what they are. You may need to ask a friend, a mentor, some kind of advisor. Where do you see some things in my life I need to grow in? If we will take that approach to our setbacks in life, we will have the same arc as John Mark. Didn't mean for that to rhyme. We will, we will look at our setbacks in life as opportunities for us to grow and to bless other people and not opportunities for us to be sorry for ourselves for what we experienced. Maybe God has something great in store for us and we're just not ready for it yet. So let's get on board with his program and willing to follow whatever steps he has for us to get where he wants us to go. I wonder if you'd bow your heads in prayer with me right now. Lord, I know that uh, with a room of people here and with people watching online, there are probably a lot of us who are experiencing a setback right now. And maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's being told no about something. Maybe it's something someone has done to us. Could be something at work or at school. There are so many different ways that we experience rejection or that we experience a, a loss of opportunity or a loss of job. And it's easy for us to look at those things and just feel so sorry for ourselves. But when we look at the story of John Mark, it's so encouraging to us, God. And my prayer is that you'd help us to have that kind of perspective on life. That we would see the difficulties that we face, not just as a, a slap in the face to us, not just as a rejection for forever, but as an opportunity to see what you are going to do through what looks like a difficult and broken situation, God. I know there are so many people here who have struggles that they may have never shared with anyone. I pray that you would help them to have the boldness to reach out and find help, to find a Barnabas who can be their encourager and a little bit of a guide and mentor them along the right path. I pray that you would give them glimpses, God, of the good things that you can do through the difficulties they're facing today and that all of this would grow our faith in you who just continues to work through us and grow us if we will just submit to you and to your leading. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.